0: Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I'm speaking with Dr. Martina de Simplicio, a clinical Senior Lecturer in Psychiatry based at the Brain Sciences Division at Imperial College London and an Honorary Consultant Psychiatrist in the West London Mental Health NHS Foundation Trust. On today's episode, we are focusing on self-harm in all its different guises. I question Martina on why the rates are rising so rapidly, what treatment can be offered to people who self-harm and if there are any trends amongst people who tend to self-harm. We also discuss interventions such as the Imaginator app for episodic stimulation-based self-harm reduction, which was built together with an advisory group of young people with lived experience of self-harm. Though this might sound like a sombre topic, it is incredibly important, and I really hope you learn as much as I did. Let's start by discussing what the definition of self-harm is according to the NICE guidelines.
1: Yes, so the NICE guidelines define self-harm as an act of self-injury or self-poisoning, regardless of intent. I think that the regardless of intent part of the definition is important in terms of basically saying that it's not always easy to describe accurately why one is engaging in self-harm. And it reflects what people with lived experience say that there might be a number of reasons and intents and motives. And sometimes it's a bit of a gray area. So you're saying that it's
0: not necessarily to inflict harm on yourself. It might be to numb an emotion, for example.
1: Yes. And, and also as clinicians, we, we sort of want to know, you know, for example, how much of it might be also a, to end one's life and what we learn from, again, from those who have lived experiences that can vary. And again, sometimes it's, there might be an, an intent to end one life very clearly, and sometimes very clearly not, but many times it's a bit of a mix. So if someone is
0: feeling suicidal, do you think they're likely to be self-harming as well? Not
1: necessarily, but we know that self-harm is one of the main risk factors for both feeling suicidal and then potentially trying to end one's life. It's one of the areas where I think researchers and clinicians discuss about to which extent that self-harm behavior and suicidal thoughts and then acts are always on the spectrum of severity, while sometimes they are two different phenomena. And it's probably... A bit of both, because for some people it will be on a spectrum of severity, but for other people there will be two very different experiences.
0: According to the research so far, what is the function of self harming? I mean, what is what is it addressing the behaviour or trying to address? So
1: first of all it can be quite heterogeneous, but I think there is an agreement that in the majority of times for many people it can be a way of managing distress. So a response to a manifestation of distress and a way of coping with different sources of distress, different types of distress. And when you say it's a heterogeneous behavior, we just explain to our listeners what that means? Yes, of course. So first of all, literally, it means that it can take many different forms, both in terms of what people do, but also why they do it and, and what they experience right before and as they do it. So for example, as as you already mentioned, sometimes it's a way of trying to regulate very acute negative emotions. So it can be stressed, it can be feeling overwhelmed, but sometimes it can be a way to feel something. If someone is feeling very numb or detached, it can bring them back to at least feeling something. And some people describe it as also an element of perhaps adrenaline or excitement or feeling something positive. So in in that respect, we would say it's very heterogeneous and different for different people. And
0: what I'm interested in is how you draw the line between what is self-harm and then obviously the pendulum can swing over into things like addiction and eating disorders, particularly something like purging or extreme restriction, because I think that can be sometimes seen as a form of self-harm or overexercising. What do you think are the most common types of self-harming that you see? And do those that I've mentioned fall
1: under that umbrella of self-harm? So that's a very interesting point. And I guess there's more than one questions there. So first of all, the most frequent form remains the one that perhaps most people have in mind when you say self-harm. So self-cutting or maybe punching a wall or burning oneself but there can also be an overdose, can be a way of self-harming. And you're right, the the behaviors have things in similar with other behaviors that we might not immediately think of self-harm, for example, binging or purging or binge drinking. This is something that perhaps regards all of psychiatry. Traditionally, we categorize symptoms for how they're described and how they present. But in this case, we could also think of the behavior In terms of what is its function? So, what is it for? And so, in that case, the behaviors that might look different, like self cutting and perhaps binging or purging, might serve the similar function. So, it might be they might be both ways of trying to manage distress, say acute anxiety, feeling overwhelmed, and then self harming or binging can both serve the function of, for example, feeling back in control and getting a sense of relief from the physical act, because that emotional pain that was there has been relieved by the physical act, whether it was purging or whether it was self-harming. So I think it depends on at what level we are, we're looking at the behavior.
0: Yeah, because it is interesting how we do traditionally associate self-harm, as you say, with cutting oneself or burning Usually it's cutting yeah, and that's the sort of most common depiction of it that you see in the media and you know, on television, et cetera. But I think for me, it was just quite interesting doing the research for this episode because actually I did start to think, well, why is it just restricted to those two categories? Because actually addiction in itself is a form of self-harm, isn't it? So, and you are essentially numbing emotion or you're doing it to feel more alive or as you say, and can be in control So I think it's, for research purposes, it is quite
1: interesting to look at those. It's all on a continuum, really. Actually, another interesting thing in what you say is that also individuals who self-harm sometimes describe it as addictive or as it's become a compulsion, which is, again, makes it, on the other hand, similar to addictions or what individuals with addictions will describe traditionally, you know, just using the substance like You do it because it's become a habit. And equally, sometimes self-cutting is described in that way. And some of the research that we're doing is trying to understand whether there might be similarities, for example, in what we call cognitive mechanisms or biases, so very automatic ways of thinking. So whether there's differences in this automatic thinking processes that are common in, say, certain addictions or when self-harm becomes compulsive and or equally the eating behavior and so the difference actually might be in those processes and whether a behavior becomes a habit and then compulsive rather than what kind of behavior it is. Yeah and I
0: think that's why neuroscience is so fascinating because and as we discover more and more about the way that the brain works and the chemicals are released in the process of, of thinking and thought patterning it's really opening up just so much scope for helping people more,
1: I think. Exactly. And one aspect that I think, again, is interesting in trying to understand, not for everyone, but for some people, self-harm becomes very hard to stop because it starts having that compulsive element and that, let's say, addictive element like substance use interesting evidence comes when you do experiments like neuroimaging and exactly you look at what areas of the brain respond in response to self-harm stimuli. Some studies have shown that this can be the same areas that respond to you know, rewarding substances like cocaine or things like that. So it might be that for some individuals, the self-harm actually has that same relief property and reward property at the brain level that the substance can have which might explain why even what well, the lived experience of saying, well, I I would like to stop, but I can't stop, similar again to substance use.
0: And I guess that's then what related to the dopamine levels in the brain and
1: how much they are walked one way or another to the pleasure or pain. Partly it is, partly it's, so the dopamine system is the one that drives sort of motivation and then engaging in a behavior. So we think that that might be involved in that, but we also know that the pleasure the relief side is also linked to the opioid system and again this is very very preliminary findings still but there's an area of research in self harm that has shown that there are differences in in the endogenous so in, in our internal levels of endorphins so of the opioid system in individuals with repetitive self harm suggesting again that this system that so we know is involved in For example, being more vulnerable to addiction might also, for some, be perhaps involved in why they become more vulnerable to repetitive self harm.
0: Why do you think that the rates of people who are self harming are rising so rapidly? It's a difficult question. I think,
1: first of all, we need to be a little bit mindful of the data. So, the data is mindful of being careful. So, the data do suggest that the rates are higher, especially. Both in, if you look at young men and young women, they have increased in both. But in the last years, they seem to have increased proportionately more in young women. I think historically, in, there is an element of probably there is a little bit less stigma and individuals are more likely to report to the self-harm. So that means that, yes, we see an increase, but maybe, you know, the rates were the same before, it's just people were less likely to talk about it. So I think that's a caveat in terms of how much the behavior has actually increased. So let's assume that there is an increase. I probably think it's not as big as we see it in the data. And then the I don't think we have an answer of why we have seen this greater rates in young women. There is a lot of discussion around, in general, increases in low mood and anxiety, because those go together with self-harm as well. And whether there is peer pressure that might be harder to deal with at the young age for young women. But I think to give a, a straightforward answer, we had we don't have the studies that have really looked at it with the right confounding factors
0: yet. It struck me as you were speaking. I mean, do you think that it's contagious self-harm? Do you see that if one person, for example, in a school class starts self-harming, I mean, I know that often it's they try to hide it. But within friendship groups, it can become quite hard to hide, especially if you're cutting yourself. I mean, people do try to conceal it and do it in places which you can't necessarily see or aren't on a public show. But do you think it is a phenomenon that's contagious? There has
1: been research that has shown that actually Particularly in clinical groups, so say on a ward, on an inpatient ward, if it seems to, for example, if it happens, and then it can be this contagion effect. And, and I think something that's been done also in adole- some studies in adolescents, not in clinical samples. So there might be that element. And I guess what we don't know is to which extent it can then become something that persists If we look at the numbers over time, one in five young people who say they self-harm, and if you ask them again after five years, one in five will still be self-harming. So that kind of tells us two things that, first of all, there is a relevant number for whom it becomes repetitive, and we really need to be able to support those. But there's also for a majority, it seems to be a behavior that in some way becomes self-limiting and perhaps has an exploratory function or maybe as you in the, when we see this contagion it can be something that people try out or explore for similar reasons like distress or managing emotions but not for everybody it will become something that persists and I think that's really as a clinician as a researcher I think that's the aspect that we would really want to be able to predict and understand more so for whom does it continue basically?
0: Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Is it more common for men or women to self harm?
1: So. The data suggests it is more common for young women. For the majority, you might have even like a 10% difference. So around 8 to 10% of young men under the age of 25 report having self harmed ones, and instead it can go between 20 to 25% for young women. Now, again, there have been some surveys where instead the prevalence was similar. And I think in this case, maybe even more, it's about what young people recognize or identify it for them as self-harm and also the stigma. So it might be that for young men, something like punching a wall, they might not report it as self-harm because they might not see it as self-harm. But then if they describe you how they feel right before and why they do it, that might be very similar to how a young woman would describe what she feels before self-cutting. Uh, So there might be a reporting bias there. And there might also, I think there's more stigma for young men to report that they are self-harming. So they might not be aware that they do it. And if they're aware they do it, but they might be more more reluctant to say so. So again, I would expect that the real data isn't as different as we see between young men and young women. And as you say,
0: because it's such a heterogeneous behavior, it does make it quite hard to treat. But what is the treatment for people who
1: are self-harming? So we know that psychological therapies that address the self harm as well are helpful and work. So, for example, the ones that have definitely been replicated enough to have strong evidence is a therapy called DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, which is a form of therapy that comes from CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, that more people might be familiar with. It's often done both in group and individually. It consists of learning ways of, for example, managing distress, so what's called distress tolerance, or developing different coping strategies for regulating emotions, working around interpersonal relationships. So we know that this therapy works, but it's a very quite long and intensive therapy. And it might also be something that isn't needed for everyone. We really need to find also other therapies that might be shorter and more effective and more scalable for everyone who might need support for self-harms. Some research has shown that also some forms of CBT are helpful and common medication like antidepressant really doesn't have evidence in terms of reducing self-harm. Who do you think are the most
0: vulnerable and can you identify trends amongst people that you see who are self-harming and do they tend to display certain character traits or is it too early to tell at the moment?
1: So we know that, for example, if you also have low motor depression, if you also misuse substances, you're more likely to repeat the self-harm. Of course, the self-harm is more likely to become repetitive. And then we know that, for example, certain traits or or experiences are associated with self-harm. So this can be experiences of trauma, traits like thinking in black and white, being perfectionist, struggling to problem solve, and also experiences like feeling very isolated, feeling like you're a burden to others are more likely to be linked with self-harm. So it's both maybe having other mental health disorders, but also just certain psychological traits or psychological experiences or life events like trauma events.
0: And some people, I think, sometimes
1: think that it's a cry for attention. Do you agree with that? I mean, the data speak for themselves in disagreeing with that. It's There is a very famous uh, among researchers model, which is called the iceberg model. And what that means is that if you look at the percentages of people who self-harm and who Attend, for example, AE or clinical services and who disclose it to someone, they're the tip of the iceberg that we see outside, but the majority will not disclose. So that's the difference that you capture if you look at those who ask for help. And then if you look, say, at anonymous surveys, and you will pick up many, many more people who have never come to the attention of, say, a doctor or a psychologist, but will disclose having self harmed. So I think that. There, the data clearly say that it's not a cry for attention in the sense of like perhaps a bit pejorative attention-seeking. Sometimes for some individuals, it can be the only way they have learned to ask for help. That's a distinction, saying that it's a way of asking for help or of manifesting distress, and some people haven't found any other way to do It's different than saying attention-seeking.
0: What advice do you have for people who are listening and who are suffering with self-harming
1: tendencies. First of all, do ask for help. Often young people say that they will get help or that they will trust asking friends, family, teachers, and perhaps even if the burden of this shouldn't necessarily be on friends or family teachers, maybe they can facilitate then asking help to other professionals. From my experience working with young people who self-harm, I find that something that they find helpful is sometimes even just understanding why it happens. It makes them help make sense of it and makes them feel like it's not like they're doing something wrong, but this comes from somewhere. But what I do, so I I use an intervention that is based on cognitive behavioral therapy. And what we do there is what we would call a formulation. What that means is understanding what happens before, what's the behavior for, what happens next. So identifying, you know, the emotions I have before, the thoughts, why you do it, it really, what are the triggers can really help make sense of it. And so a professional can help even just doing that. And then they can help identifying and trying to figure out an individual's own way of trying, a different way of trying to manage those Emotions or difficult situations, and I acknowledge that sometimes there might be a lot more happening in the young person's life, so I don't want to you know minimize that this is enough, but it it usually is a good start. I mean, it's really to go and speak to someone
0: and to get help and to yeah. explore what is underneath the desire to self-harm. yeah, and for parents or friends, as you say, teachers who I think play a really vital role, what can they do to support someone who's self-harming?
1: So learning from what young people have taught me, they would say, first of all, listen, be, you know, open. Don't be scared. Don't try. And this is really hard for maybe a parent. Don't try to fix it straight away. Don't try to fix it and problem solve straight away. Give the young person space to perhaps slowly in a conversation understand together where this comes from, what is it that they're feeling, why they're doing this, and that will establish a trust and will make the young person feel heard and slowly more understood. And that, I think, will be the basis to then suggest maybe going to ask for help or, or together initially, maybe even trying to problem solve. But it's a strong pull to try and help fix it and solve it. And while it's hard, I think that can sometimes be unhelpful. So
0: Martina, I'd love to just briefly touch on your research and what you're doing. So will you tell us about the Imaginator app that you've developed and how it works?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, I work in trying to develop new psychological therapies based on CBT. And the type of technique that I'm interested in is working with what we call mental imagery. So that means using visualization and thinking in your mind's eye, picturing things. And that is because we know that if you picture things, if you visualize something rather than thinking just in words, that can have a much stronger emotional power. So if you you know, imagine something exciting that you're looking forward to in a very vivid way, you might already feel in your body getting excited. But equally, if if you picture a very negative memory that can pull you down and... But also, people might be familiar, I don't know, with sports psychology, often athletes picture, you know, how to achieve their best shot or their best jump. And that helps them both with motivation, but also with planning the behavior. So in Imaginator, we're trying to use this power of mental imagery, of visualizing, to help young people make a visual plan, what we call their imagery plan of doing something more helpful as an alternative to self-harming. And that is also because we know that often when when you have the urge to self-harm, you experience images of self-harm in your mind. And so we instead we want to kind of train the opposite. Okay, what about using the power of mental imagery, but to do something that will be more helpful. The imaginator intervention has three sessions with psychologists that help you develop this mental imagery plan and to really try and learn how to use imagery in a helpful way. And then we co-designed with young people with lived experience of self-harm an app, which is the Imaginator app. And the idea is that the app works together with the therapy sessions. So it's a brief intervention, and then the app helps you continue practicing the imagery skills. So it has little visualization audios, a mood diary, and you can also write and journal different things, and you can set goals so the idea is that it kind of becomes a bit of a self-help tool as well that the young person can keep using after the therapy has finished.
0: And who is it targeted at at the moment? You mentioned young people, but how you, you is it still in the process of being formulated and
1: created or do young people have access to it already? The target is young people 13 to 25 and we have just finished a second pilot of it, because it takes quite a number of iterations to get to a a minimally engaging app, to put it this way. Uh, So we've just finished a second pilot, a research study. So it's not an app that is sort of yet available on the app stores. We have the evidence from two pilot studies that we've done is that it's helpful. So we have shown that young people who received the imaginator intervention reduced their self-harm behavior. But we need to run a bigger trial to be able to kind of fully say that this is sort of better than, in a way, doing nothing Uh, or just time passing. That's how you measure the efficacy of interventions. But hopefully it might become, as we do that, because there is a high need in schools and in services, we will also be trying to roll it out at the same time as we do the next research trial
0: and presumably it's tailored to the individual.
1: Yeah, so the app doesn't have like, for example, oh, you need to do this session or this other session. A bit like a therapy, it's, it has different functionalities, and um, so that a young person can choose. Oh, I find this audio more helpful. Or what we've seen is that, for example, some people really like the mood diary. They find helpful to log in every day their emotions in a using digital emojis, and others don't like it at all. So it, it has that flexibility. And, and we hope actually before we, we run the final trial to make it even more personalizable, because that's what we're learning is that it needs to be quite flexible for young people to find it engaging.
0: So what's the plan then to roll it out? So you you need to do another pilot, another iteration of the app, and, and then hopefully it gets released. And will it be And will people
1: have to pay for it? How will you launch it, do you think? Or is that still undecided? So ideally, the plan, which always depends on getting the funding, is to do one more iteration of the design and then to have it as a a little package because it comes at the moment, it comes with these three therapy sessions that, for example, those who deliver support for self-harm could buy. So that can be a mental health trust or a charity or, you know, a therapist Just so that we can maintain the app because it costs to maintain an app over time. And at the same time, we would apply for funding to do the larger trials. So we want the app to be free for those who use it. So for the young people, Uh, but to be able to maintain it, it might have cost, for example, for the providers of the therapy.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you're relying on people really giving their time to you as well. Well, I think it all sounds really, really hopeful. And um, it's so incredible to hear about all the work you're doing in the space. And we look forward to seeing how the Imaginator app comes onto the market and helps, I'm sure, a lot of like, young people.
1: Thank you very much. Yes,
0: fingers crossed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.